0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. and I'm here today with Andrew Stark, who is a professor of strategic management and political science at the University of Toronto and also the author of multiple books, including this one, Conflict of Interest in American Public Life. We've got this one called Drawing the Line, Public and Private in America. Another one called The Limits of Medicine, which I don't have with me at the moment. And most recently, this one called The Consolations of Mortality, Making Sense of Death. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. Now, this book, The Consolation of Mortality... It's very wide-ranging and you reference quite a few philosophers and literary figures and you say that you yourself are not a philosopher or a literature expert. You are just an everyday bundle of ego and anxiety and that qualifies you to write on this topic. And I think that if we were to summarize the book, there's four different angles that you explore when it comes to consolations of mortality. But I, I guess what I took away from it Is to paraphrase Winston Churchill, mortality is the worst thing out there, except for everything else, except for the alternative. And so I guess maybe we could start off by saying, well, what is a professor of strategic management doing writing on a topic like this? I mean, the other topics are also, they're a little tangential to strategic management. They certainly are perhaps a little closer. But what inspired you to start thinking about this, perhaps more deeply than the rest of us bundles of ego, and anxiety. It's
0: true that these books, especially this one, is tangential to strategic management, but the real answer to your question is that I'm tangential to strategic management in the sense that I am a professor of strategic management, and I do stuff in that area. But my original field was political science, and I studied a lot of philosophy in graduate school, and I I guess I've taken seriously the notion that the, the point of being an academic is to follow the spirit of inquiry on the presumption that if you're passionately interested in a topic, you'll be able to pursue it to a deeper degree than somebody who isn't all that passionately interested. And so I've simply followed questions that I am interested in with the caveat that I haven't obviously written about rocket science or mathematics because I have absolutely no capability in those areas, but I've gone as far as I can following my interests in areas where I feel I could write something. So I guess that's the answer to your question.
1: Well, I would say, I mean, part of this book is about how you should think about death, but part of it is also how the way you think about death impacts your life planning or how you engage in life. And I think one theme that pretty much all of the authors that you reference from Turgenev to Tolstoy, Heidegger to Sartre, I mean, I think all of them would agree on one thing, which is that most people don't give a great deal of thought to death. I mean, we push it under the rug, and then when people do think about it, it has very Different consequences. For some people, it's paralyzing. For others, it is the crack of the whip that gets them started. Maybe perhaps we could go back to the very beginning, not just of human thought, but the beginning of your book, where you you reference Epicurus. Obviously, people have been thinking about this for a long time, and I think we always go back to the Epicureans or the Stoics, who have slightly different approaches, and sometimes we go back to the Buddhists. Could you talk? I mean, why did you start with Epicurus? I started with
0: Epicurus because I think his Little epigram, which is, as long as I am around, death isn't, and once death comes, I'm no longer here, covers a lot of ground. It basically says that death is irrelevant to us for those, either of those two reasons. At any point in time, it can't matter to us. That, and the fact that Epicurus is historically at the, not the origins, but close to the origins of non-theological thinking about death. And my book does not, when I talk about the consolations of mortality, I'm not talking about religious consolations. I'm writing about writers who've tried to console us for our mortality, but without using the possibility of an afterlife. What Epicurus said is a very pithy encapsulation of a lot of what other writers have subsequently said to console us for our mortality. Basically, my own death has nothing to do with me. And that is the argument. And I examine that in the book and look at it from different angles. I don't think it works. A lot of philosophers, contemporary philosophers, have gotten into all sorts of deep weeds trying to figure out whether it works or not. I have my own take on it in the book, which is less a logical and philosophical and more a psychological take, which is that if we try and make Epicurus's maxim apply to us, we'll run into a a, a kind of a dilemma. Either we will try and wrap our lives up too soon to make it so that I don't have projects and things I care about that I've left undone, and then death will not be able to harm me. Whereas if I still have something important yet to do, then it's really not true that when death comes, I'm not still there because I still have things that I care about. Or alternatively, we won't get things wrapped up because we'll take the position that my own death has nothing to do with me. I'll just tootle along. And all of a sudden I face a moment where I'm about to die and I've got a lot of things I haven't done. So either we'll wrap things up too soon and be dead in that way, or we won't and death will impact our ongoing projects. So I play around with the reality or how real Epicurus's consolation actually is along those lines. And I talk about various literary figures and so forth in doing so.
1: Well, it's kind of like those two epithets you get, right? One is live every day, like it's your last day on earth. And the other one is, you know, every day is the first day of the rest of your life. So, I mean, those have radically different consequences for what you should do. And yet people seem comfortable <laughs> spouting each one of them in different circumstances, right?
0: They do. And I, do, I do, do talk about those two pieces of what I call fortune cookie wisdom in the book. And they imply very different things, as you say. And we, I mean, they're sort of a mirror image of what Epicurus said, but in a way that I think draws out the difficulty of what Epicurus said said, we can't do both of those things at the same time. If today is my last day, if I live along those lines, then I'm always going to be trying to get everything done. But suppose today isn't my last day. then you know, I'll simply be looking back on my accumulated glory, but moving further and further ahead of it in time. We see that in sports, with sports figures and Holderlin, the, the poet said, just give me one great work, God, and then I'll be happy. You get one great work but 40 years later people are going to say well what have you done for me lately and you're going to be saying that to yourself alternatively you could live as if today is the first day of the rest of your life but it might not be so my point is to simply try and suggest that this entire framing doesn't really do a lot for us and that maybe we need other ways of thinking about death
1: yeah i mean just to put it into ordinary language a lot of us can sympathize with the idea of YOLO. You never used this term YOLO, but there's a rapper who was famously texted out or tweeted out YOLO right before he crashed his car into a wall. I shouldn't laugh, I mean, it's really terrible. But the folks who are in the 27 Club, I think they would probably subscribe to the Holderlin School to some degree, right? Go out while your head dropped from the tree when you're ripe. But then if you live past that, there's an image in the book of a musician and there, there used to be a TV show, I think it was on MTV, where they would go around and find these old artists. I think it was like Flock of Seagulls or some 80s band. And, they, you know, they on the lead singer and he's operating a forklift in a warehouse. And on the one hand, it's kind of sad, like, what happened to this guy? But on the other, it's like, hey, you know, no matter how long he lives, he'll always have that to look back on, that stadium full of people, mm-hmm. even though he's operating a forklift. Yes, but again, to
0: talk about rock musicians for a moment, the group of singers who've been called the Forever 27 Club, and these are obviously tragic cases, these are people like Jimi Hendrix and Amy Winehouse and others who died at the age of 27. If you look at what some of them have said about their lives, they viewed them as not as an arc or maybe they did view them as an arc, but they didn't want to confront the fact that there was going to be this point. So they would say, in my next 10 years, I'm going to double what I did this 10 years. And then after that, it's not going to arc. It's going to get ever greater. But they discovered that that's not what was going to happen. And that there's reason to think that discovery and the pressure on them had something to do with Mm -hmm. the tragedies that befell them. On the other hand, if you do make it to the other side of the arc and you're now operating a forklift or whatever the longing for the height of the arc is something that's going to nag at you and i talk about some rock bands who were who still on tour years after their apex one of them a band member from kiss who was touring around at this stage
1: I think it was the, sticks it was sticks
0: maybe it was but anyway he said after the end of one of these shows to the audience, don't forget us. And the reason he was still performing is he knew that the apex was receding backward in time and that was getting to him. So all of these ways of looking at death and what it means for life are problematic, or many of them are. In teasing out the implications of these views, I found them wanting but it's still true that on my own view for reasons we haven't discussed yet is that mortality is a lousy situation except for all of the other alternatives that may exist
1: I do want to talk about what's wrong with immortality but you didn't mention glory I mean you talked a lot about how people they want to be remembered and they want to think that they're making an impact in the world, which will live on in people's memories or perhaps you know, be memorialized, right? Ozymandias. But but it seems like that notion of glory was something that really drove at least the heroes, right, in, say, ancient Greece and elsewhere. I mean, that was really, I remember reading histories of the Crusades where these People would just charge into these castles and they would do it in the stupidest way, right? They would just compete to see who could be the first person to impale themselves on the enemy's swords. And you look at that and you think it's crazy. But for someone who, you know, esteems glory and imagines that this story will be told over and over again with their name attached, it's something that I think we don't use that term glory, but I think people implicitly are thinking about making their mark in some way. And that thereby escaping mortality
0: yes and first of all trying to make an impact on the world and contributing to the world are very valuable and wonderful things and they should be part of any human life to the extent possible but connecting that to glory and being remembered is problematic if that's the motivation. And there are a number of reasons. Why well, I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking of a quotation that I think I use in the book from Marcus Aurelius. And I think he said something like, why do we think that by doing great things, we're going to live on in the minds of generations to come when the members of those generations are themselves going to be too busy doing great things that they want to be remembered. that They don't care. That's not their, going to be their motivation. But the other problem that I think exists with that, and it is that I think I, I use this example of one of the pharaohs, Ramses, I can't remember what number.
1: Seventh, I think it was, or eighth. <laughs> Could you tell a difference? Yeah.
0: And there's, a, there's something called the Concise Biographical Dictionary and if you look up ramses the seventh in that dictionary it says ramses the seventh is a pharaoh of egypt about whom absolutely nothing is known so we remember ramses the seventh i know his name lives on but does he really live on i mean he could have been anybody that name could have been attached to anything suppose we know that he built a certain pyramid we know Ramses built is, we ask who is Ramses, he's the guy who built that pyramid. Who built that pyramid was Ramses, but that's a circle that doesn't give us much to go on. So we think when I go through the university and I see the names of benefactors on buildings who've contributed to the university event in ways that are meaningful and wonderful and done great things they don't enter my mind i see the name but nobody in particular is attached to it in fact i now think of these names as names of buildings not of people and i'm not disparaging what they do or have done at all
1: they're not going to invite you to any of the fundraiser
0: uh <laughs> i can see that i realize i've just dealt myself out of a number of but my point is that their motivation in doing so on the good work that they've done mm-hmm. is itself enough or it should be enough. And the other stuff, I think we're kidding ourselves a little bit when we think that it will have any significant meaning for anybody other than a couple of generations of our own children going forward.
1: Yeah, I was just talking to a fundraiser at Stanford University. He was de- deploring the building cap that the city of Palo Alto put on Stanford because he doesn't have any more buildings. <laughs> he can sell to the donors and without the buildings it's hard to raise money i'll just interrupt and i'm sure he knows this
0: and i don't know what kind of deals stanford has made but you can resell a building
1: look at geffen hall
0: yeah exactly you can take the name of the original donor and put it on a little plaque in the building and put the name of the new donor on it and that is done
1: i felt like when they did that at lincoln center to avery fisher hall avery fisher kind of got a raw deal I mean, his grandchildren sold him out. I mean, why do the grandchildren have the right to sell out their grandfather for filthy lucre? I mean, that doesn't seem like a good strategy going forward. I mean, I wonder if David Geffen had a different clause put into his... He he may well have. But that's a cautionary tale. I
0: mean, I have this little anecdote in the book where I was in a building, a community center, a religious center in Toronto. And I was looking at the plaques on various rooms. Mm -hmm. And most of them said something like this, in big letters, this room has been donated by Joe and Mary Smith. And then in smaller letters underneath, in loving memory of their mother, Mary, yeah, or whatever. And so even that is a capsulation of what Marcus Aurelius was saying, which is even our own descendants are going to have their own interests and so forth. For almost all of us, unless we are very great men or women, that's our lot. To acknowledge that and then try and reframe what's important in life and what we're doing with our own lives, in light of that reality, instead of kidding ourselves about it, is something that I think is worth pondering. And that's part of what the book suggests.
1: Well, part of the book is providing some consolation, but part of it is actually creating a need for consolation because you're reminding people of the illusory nature of some of their own consolations and the limitations of the consolations that they carry around with them. That's true.
0: As I say in the book, what I tried to do in it is to collect together all of the non-religious consolations for mortality that I could and critically examine them. Mm -hmm. And some of them in my own examination, and others obviously anybody can take a different view, don't really work, Mm -hmm. but some do. And that's the conclusion of the of the book.
1: There's a little section where you compared the approach in It's a Wonderful Life with the approach in life is Beautiful. And I thought that was a really cool contrast because it dove into this notion of contingency and how we imagine the world with us and the world without us, right?
0: In uh, It's a Wonderful Life, the main character in George Bailey, the basic point is that we're little nodes in a vast connection of events. Almost everything we actually do that affects the world we don't know about i think i use this example if i drive to the 7-eleven and take the last carton of milk then somebody else comes a few minutes later and they have to drive to another 7-eleven and they get into an accident or whatever good and bad we're always sending out these waves and by the same token much of what happens in our lives would have happened anyway if we weren't here yeah. so on the one hand almost all of what we do we aren't aware of And the other, almost all of what we are aware of, we don't do and would happen anyway. So I play around with that idea. And the two movies illustrate that. I mean, George Bailey was played by Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. The angel has to show him all of the things, all of the impacts he's had on other people that he is not aware of. And by the same token in Life is Beautiful, the movie that Roberto Benigni conceived and directed one of the things that you can take away from that is how much of what happens to us would have happened anyway, even if we weren't around. So I play those notions in the book.
1: You also talk a bit about regret. And I think all of us have regret. And I think there was a quote in there that it's essentially life is just a accumulation of regrets. And we're always contemplating what would have happened if we had done X, Y, or Z. And I think for everyone who bemoans not doing X, there's others that Console themselves by saying if i had done that then i wouldn't have all these wonderful things that that i currently have and one quote i really liked was the wife of this provincial leader tell that story because i love that one it's a story about the premier of manitoba a man named
0: ed schreier in the 1970s and his wife lily were driving through the manitoba countryside And they stopped at a gas station, and the person pumping gas happened to be Mrs. Schreier's former, I think, high school boyfriend. And as they pulled out of the gas station, Premier Schreier said to his wife, Lily, ha, just think of where you'd be right now if you'd married him instead of me. And Lily Schreier said, I know what would have happened. I'd be married to the Premier of Manitoba. And the point, of course, was that whoever she had married, she would have made that person into the premier of Manitoba. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I take from that story is that, and I find this a consoling thought, not necessarily about mortality, but about life, is that we tend to think that if only we had done X, things would have been very different. But that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. We are certain kinds of creatures with certain kinds of psychologies and certain kinds of motivations and if we would married x instead of y or taken this particular career instead of that particular career it may well be that the experiences we would have had would be much more similar than the differences in the personalities that we married or the careers that we might have chosen would suggest and in a way And I think some writers have used that as a consoling thought. I don't talk about that. I didn't, I cut this Mm -hmm. out of the book, but Hemingway's The Snows of Kilimanjaro talks about a man who is, he's a writer and he's dying on Mount Kilimanjaro and his wife is present and it's because of a stupid mistake that he had, he had gotten an infection and he's thinking about his life. He's thinking about his wife and he's basically saying, if it wasn't her, it would have been somebody else. And... The implication was it would have been much the same. Is Mm -hmm. there somebody who would have been better? No, because that person would have been married to me and it would have Mm -hmm. been much the same. And he is, in effect, in a very brusque, dry, terse, Hemingway-esque way, consoling himself in, I think, a realistic way Mm -hmm. about life, banishing regrets by pondering the possibility that two very different paths that he might have taken would ultimately have kind of converged.
1: But of course, if you think like that retroactively, and then you convert that into thinking like that proactively, then it saps you of any real motivation right, to do anything, because you think that everything's going to wind up more or less the same way. I was thinking of, you didn't reference Ian McEwen, but I know a lot of his books are about some critical moment where... protagonist has to make a choice and then it's like a sliding doors moment and their life is altered as a result now one of the things that you mentioned i forget who you were quoting which philosopher but the idea was that if you look back on something some choice you made and you try to imagine a world where you made a different choice it wouldn't just change everything that came after but it would also have to kind of change everything that came before because the only way that you could have made that different choice is you would have had to be a different person and have a different upbringing and and have different parents, maybe.
0: And that's another way of consoling yourself. Nietzsche is the philosopher with whom that kind of idea is most prominently associated, but many others have said it. It's related to the free will versus determinism debate, but the basic idea is that everything is interconnected and that for you to have made a different choice in exactly the same circumstances, well, that's not possible because if the circumstances were exactly the same, you would have had to have made the same choice. And therefore, for you to have made a different choice, everything preceding that moment would have had to have been different. But then we get into questions of whether you would even have existed in that kind of a world. There are two thoughts here. One is the notion that different choices converge Not completely, not in all details, but more than the initial difference might suggest. And the other is that even one little difference in our choice would have had to have meant that everything would have been different. Mm -hmm. So to regret having, I don't know, turned down a particular job or whatever, you'd have to also be regretting all of the wonderful things in your life. Your upbringing, your parents, your existence. So that those are two thoughts. People dispute them, but I, I think they're pretty solid things to contemplate when you are thinking about regret, and they're meant to be consoling. And I give them weight.
1: Yeah, I toggle back and forth between them. So as an historian, I toggle back and forth between all School, which is no individual makes any impact, and kind of the great man school where Napoleon does this stuff and it has a huge impact. And then in economics, the more you are schooled in neoclassical economics, the more you think about negative feedback loops and equilibrium. And no matter what you try to do to get away from equilibrium, you always wind up. But then, of course, there's the whole positive feedback, increasing returns school, the chaos theory school where butterfly wings takes you in a completely different direction. But depending on which social science hat I'm wearing on any given day, it radically affects how I think about my own life. Fair enough. And these are thoughts
0: that are plausible, but whether they apply and to what extent they apply in any given situation is hard to know. The one thing I would say, though, is that when we're talking about the kind of Hemingway consolation, we're not talking about grand issues of chaos theory and the organizational complexities and interactions that can happen when one little thing is different and there are cascading effects. It's an observation about individual psychology. Mm-hmm. And the point is that by if you are a certain person, which most of us are, had a given point, we might think that a different choice would have meant a different life, but given that we are a certain person, we would have reacted to that different experience in much the same way that we reacted to the one that we chose. Mm-hmm. We would have had the same anxieties. We would have had the same joys from it. We would have had imposed our own neuroses on a different relationship, just as we did on the one that we had. And so it's an observation that just don't get carried away with the thought that you made a choice that would have dramatically changed your life, because you would have drawn from it and experienced it and imposed on it much of what you did in the life that you chose. It's a thought worth reflecting on, but it's not complex economic theory with modeling, et cetera, to show you this. it's a basic observation about human beings and i think it it carries weight in that context
1: now i think we've seen a resurgence of buddhist thinking and stoic thinking in recent decades in not only people going back to the original sources but of course philosophers like derek parfit and others are channeling this and what accounts for the attractiveness of that approach and what do you see are the limitations to that approach buddhism and stoicism
0: and they are popular obviously these days i guess if they share something it's a way of trying to shrink our areas of concern so that there's less and less and less that we need to be anxious or worried about so if you're a buddhist and you believe that there actually is no such thing as the self then there's nothing that can die first of all because there is no self to die there is nothing that really has any attachments in the world such that you could be harmed if something happens to them. And so that kind of letting go is, if you can achieve it, something that might allow you to lead a life that's more tranquil and maybe more realistic, maybe more beautiful. Stoicism is similar. It doesn't say there is no self, but it says that we should put ourselves in a situation where the only things we care about are the things that we can control. And since we can't control almost everything, we should try to be dispassionate about almost everything. So we can't control the fact that bad things will happen to us. And the Stoics get into this in some gruesome detail of the kinds of bad things that can happen to us. But since we can't, couldn't do anything about them, there's no point in our anguishing about them. And so, again, we restrict the domain of our self to a very small portion of the world and they're popular these days because they are ways of counseling us in a very anxious age as to how to deal with our anxieties about death and about almost everything
1: else i was going to switch gears and talk a bit about immortality the book toggles back and forth between thoughts about mortality and its opposite or its alternative which is immortality and and Although people have always thought about immortality, we're actually at a place where there are intelligent people who think that this is within our grasp. You've got people freezing themselves and trying to figure out ways to upload their consciousness into some database and whatever. And I think some people would say that this is a horrible prospect, right? I mean, some people are very attracted to this notion, perhaps because they fear death or because they have restless curiosity that they think they can continue to satisfy. But others think that this just sounds like a terrible idea. I mean, you talk about Leon Cass and others who, who think that without mortality, then there's really little reason to get out of bed in the morning.
0: The idea that without mortality, there's no reason to get out of bed in the morning, that we need death to motivate us. I actually reject that idea because, and this is really the underlying point, both good and bad whether we were mortal or immortal, we'd still be temporal. We would Mm -hmm. still be creatures who lived in time and time brings changes. Things are constantly changing in time. One implication of that is that even if we didn't die, we'd still have a motivation to get out of bed in the morning. So I think I use the example if Barack Obama were immortal, would he have run for president in 2008? Or would he have said, ah, I've got plenty of time. He would have run in 2008 because that was his moment, and he knew that. And if he had waited, somebody else would come along, other things Mm. would happen, events would change. And because we know there is a tide in the affairs of human beings, I believe that's not a good argument for death. But because things are temporal, if we lived forever, and this is where we get into some other thinkers in the book, what kind of experience would we have of? knowing that Mm -hmm. as time goes on, more and more things are going to happen. The alternatives seem to be either we would be terminally bored, or if we did shake things up, this is a point made by Bernard Williams, we'd either be bored if things continued the same, or we might continually change our interests, new things would happen, we'd be continually be engaged. Wonderful, except We wouldn't be immortal that way because essentially previous selves would have been dying to make way for a new self. If you have a family who you love and you've got a career that you love, if you live forever, sooner or later, those things would have to fall away if life was not going to get interminably repetitive. This Mm -hmm. is his argument. But if they all fell away, those are the things that we regret losing with death Now, anyway, well, we'd have to lose them if we were immortal and wanted to avoid terminal boredom. That's Bernard Williams' dilemma, or his people have criticized it. I play with it in the book and I look at some other possibilities. For example, maybe we could split the difference. Maybe we could be in a situation where we kept our values and the people we cherished and all of that pretty much the same throughout time, but new things would keep happening to us to keep us interested problem if we stay the same in some ways but the world is changing in others we are going to become quickly out of date and pretty soon terminally nostalgic mm-hmm. and i actually can see this in myself and in other people right now although it's something you can read hans jonas a philosopher of a prior mm-hmm. generation said oh, i don't understand the world anymore and blah blah back blah, in the day blah. Back in the day, because he was a certain kind of person, he hadn't changed, he'd kept the things that he valued, but the world had. And so there was a disconnect. It wasn't that things hadn't Mm. changed, so he was still the same self, but changed enough so that he wasn't bored. No, something else happened. He didn't change, the world did. And he was feeling stranded and said, I am actually thankful for the reality, namely death, that I know will eliminate that problem at one point. I can see right now that the world is changing in ways, in all sorts of ways that I am, I'm not saying I disapprove or approve of them. They're strange to me. And even if I can acclimatize to them, it's not as if changes are gonna stop, they're gonna keep going on and on. And if we think about that over periods of hundreds of years, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, I think time is the problem. And we're not, we could, even if we escape mortality, we're not going to escape time.
1: Do you ever look at people and say, hey, that's the kind of person that would not stand up well to immortality. And that's the kind of person you probably could deal with it pretty well. I mean, I look around my house and I I realize every book I read, I got three coming in the house. (laughs) I just keep thinking like, you mentioned this in the book actually, and they just keep getting produced. I mean, even if people stop producing books right now and no one ever wrote another book, it would take me a couple hundred years to get through all the ones that i'm interested in reading but they do keep creating new ones and then the new ones that open up new fields i find it difficult to think of how long i would have to live before i would get bored but you know i guess someday would come unless i was really really forgetful
0: or if you're forgetful then you're dying in a way and the
1: magic wand
0: in all of this is the possibility of vastly increasing our intelligence Mm -hmm. and i guess the idea there is that if we were hyper intelligent creatures then maybe we could deal with these problems somehow. But when I look at what people have actually said about what that would look like, to me, it also looks like a kind of death. And by that, I mean, I'm talking about the scenarios that I don't quite-
1: is like Ray Kurzweil's notion. Yeah,
0: yeah, that we will meld into some kind of supermind where the mysteries of the universe and deep, patterns of scientific reality that we can't comprehend with our little noggins that we have will become comprehensible. But then it's not clear that we are any longer either recognizably human or even our individual selves any longer. If we're merging or melding, those are words that are used by those who talk about this, what's supposedly going to come. We are not going to be individuals anymore hence the term post-human which many of the devotees of this idea use that term they want to move beyond being human and beyond being individuals fine but don't tell me that that furnishes a kind of immortality that I as an individual human being am looking for in immortality it's something else it may be wonderful it may be uh, hellish but Because it relies on the elimination of the individual human being, which is what death does, it doesn't seem to me to be an answer either to the concerns and anxieties that people have right now about death.
1: I mean, you've got folks like Heidegger saying that you need an awareness of death to crack the whip and motivate you. But, you know, what I found is that at least when I move into a new city, if I move there expecting to leave sometime soon, then I never really develop any friendships or learn anything about the place and if I move into a new place and assume I'm going to be there forever even though I know I'm probably not then I tend to learn a lot more and put down roots and forge relationships. To what extent is our awareness of death capable of bringing out the best in us and to what extent do we need to suppress some awareness of death in order to get the best out of us?
0: I guess if I'm trying the implications out of my own Writing, I would say that we shouldn't look at it in that way, one way or the other. To look at death as something that we might use to motivate ourselves, or to look at it as something that we might suppress, both of those are things that I don't find psychologically good ideas. The notion that we can suppress our Awareness of death, Freud and others have questioned that opens up a can of worms as to what that suppression does to us. The idea of having it constantly in the forefront of our mind to whip us into doing this, that, or the other thing, to me, that sounds like a way of distorting our own lives and making them miserable in a different way. My own hope is that we simply be aware, as I have tried to argue in the book, that being mortal is better than any other option we might have had, that if we're going to live in time, that is, if we're going to be temporal creatures, which we have to be, then being mortal is better than being immortal, understand that and then live and not use death in one way or the other or suppress it or whatever. That's basically, I guess what I am saying.
1: I don't know if we can draw any connections between this work and one of your previous works, which is called The Limits of Medicine. And in that book, you highlight this difference between healing and enhancement. And I thought that discussion, I mean, there's a lot of different dimensions to that discussion, but I think one fundamental takeaway is that there is no clear dividing line, but it does matter how we look at things, right? So if we for instance, look in the mirror and we see. I've always been stunned whenever I turn on the radio and I hear them talking about healing baldness. <laughs> I was just thinking, Wait, when did this become a disease? I always thought this was a feature, not a bug, right? But our view of different attributes dramatically affects how we live or how we think about our lives. It's true. I mean, and the book is premised
0: on the observation that some things that we Traditionally, think of or have thought of as medical conditions are being viewed now more as cultural phenomena. Hmm. Members of the deaf community or of the blind community, uh, people with autism, are saying, wait a minute. Not all members of those communities, Mm -hmm. but many are saying to try and cure our conditions as if they were medical conditions, instead of trying to recognize that we are our own culture, we contribute a different way of looking at the world, we have our own language, we have our own way of thinking, there's problems here. Alternatively, certain kinds of situations that we have traditionally thought of as cultural issues, and I'm thinking perhaps of Somebody is not able to win a race because they're physically not as good as their competitor. We used to think that if there's a problem here, it's a cultural problem. We're putting pressure on people to win and to mm-hmm. lose and yep. there's, but now we're treating yeah that kind of condition medically, and maybe baldness is another example of that. I mean baldness was a cultural phenomenon. if I could use that word broadly. people who were bald were being subjected to ridicule, and the answer was to change the culture and to be more accepting and so forth and so on now, or for some decades and probably for a long time, actually, but more and more it's now being seen as a medical condition. So we have this roiling sort of situation where what was a cultural problem is now seen as a medical problem. What used to be seen as a medical issue is now seen as a cultural question. So the book looks at that and tries to figure out how to think about that.
1: Yeah, there's a bunch of different trajectories. I mean, you talk about something like arthritis. So arthritis is just considered a normal part of living, and now it's considered a medical condition. But that's really only because we now have perhaps a way of alleviating it. So the invention of the intervention is what pathologizes the condition, right? Yes and
0: no. I mean, in the case of arthritis, the reason arthritis is a medical condition and legitimately a medical condition is because there are some people who don't have it and so if you have it and the norm is not to have it or the ideal is not to have it you can legitimately say i have a medical condition or at least that's one of the things that you could say to say you have a medical condition but if i say i want to invent a pill that's going to give me an iq of 400 as some people have been talking about, or that's going to give me other kinds of superhuman qualities, that's not a medical condition. That is something that becomes a condition because we have found something that treats it. And so I think there is an important divide there, that if we're going to call something a medical condition, a treatment for it is something that should bring people with it to some other state that other human beings already have. And that creates an evolutionary way of thinking about what a medical condition is. It doesn't freeze a medical condition in time forever, because we are evolving public health, other things, lifespan, etc. But a cure or a treatment should take us to some norm or ideal that already exists apart from the existence of that treatment. And that is what I argue in the book, to put a break on crazy sorts of things that Leon Cass, who you mentioned a moment ago, has raised alarm bells about it.
1: I mean, some would say that awareness of mortality, particularly in a world where people don't have religious consolation, this creates an underlying level of anxiety that could be seen as a pathology. So, I mean, should we be thinking about this as a medical condition and maybe think about pharmacological intervention as the solution, or should we shy away from that. You talk about low-level neurosis as something which could either be viewed as resolving it in some way pharmacologically, it could be seen either as a medical intervention or seen as an enhancement.
0: I guess I'm divided on that. If I'm
1: applying the
0: principle that I enunciated a moment ago, which is that, I I guess what you're saying, should we have a pill that eliminates not anxiety generally, but specifically anxiety about death? Would that yeah. be a good idea? And I guess one way of looking at that would be to say, if a medical condition is something that, that if we treated it, would bring those with it to a social norm or an ideal that others have, and then the question is, is it normal to not fear or think about death? Is it the ideal in our society to not think about death or whatever? I would have to say, I don't think so at the moment. So it's not clear to me that a pill specifically for that purpose treats a real medical condition. But that doesn't mean that philosophy or other ways of thinking about death that might be palliative or that might deliver consolation, aren't valuable. They are. I'm simply talking about whether death anxiety is a medical condition, not a something else that may be other areas of society should be dealing with and treating and so forth. So I guess that's my gut reaction. However, it's also the case that medication for anxiety generally certainly treats medical conditions Mm -hmm. because not everybody is anxious or anxious in the same way. And there is a social ideal, I think that we not be anxious to an excess Mm -hmm. and we not be anxious in situations that don't merit our anxiety and so In that sense, but in that more general sense, pharmacological treatments for anxiety are totally legit. They treat a real medical condition.
1: But it does seem that the folks who are able to fully comprehend their mortality and have no illusions about it and still manage to carry on and have successfully found consolation, I mean, they're like the LeBron James of the spiritual life, right? And if we want to be like that, I mean, that seems to be... I think you you would refer to it as an enhancement, right? Because it goes beyond what our natural capabilities are. Well, if there are LeBron Jameses of our spiritual life, then I would have
0: to say, I would be compelled to say, based on my own principles, that yes, if there is a medical treatment that would take us to where some other people already are, that we should be open to that. But I guess I'm questioning whether there are really LeBron Jameses of the spiritual world in that sense or whether we are all not there yet in which case we're all in the same boat and we are we can't all have a medical condition that's distorting the meaning of it it's just saying we're all human and so we need the humanities to treat or deal with that kind of problem
1: well I think it was Plato who said that the philosopher is the physician of the soul and so if you were dispensing prescriptions If you're allowed to dispense prescriptions, what would those prescriptions be? It seems like it requires not only an exposure to philosophy, but also to literature. And certainly, it doesn't seem like you would think a pure substance would be adequate. You'd have to have a varied diet. I agree.
0: And when I think about these kinds of issues, I think it's important to draw on philosophy, literature, popular culture, psychology, both folk psychology and the kind of psychology real psychologists do and it's a grab bag and of course what you know mileage may vary as they say what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for another person what I tried to do in the book is at least collect all of the possibilities that there are for non-religious consolations that I have been able to find together I give my own assessment of them, but mileage may vary. Some may find some things useful that I don't and vice versa. And I think that it's those kinds of conversations that are most likely to be helpful on the question of death on other kinds of anxieties where we don't all share them, we may want to think about medical and other kinds of of interventions, which we have done.
1: Now you look, you teach in a business school, I was wondering, do you have Any courses in which you expose students to this side of your thinking? I mean, America has historically been famously unreflective. Freud had contempt for America because of the religion of the dollar. And, you know, at business schools, we're sitting in the temple of the dollar. So do you manage to somehow incorporate this into your teaching? Well, I don't. I teach courses
0: in business ethics and government ethics, and I don't directly incorporate this kind of stuff. I mean, I certainly, I think the spirit of my courses is to encourage students to think critically, to see the flaws in what is often presented as the most sophisticated form of analysis, data analysis, this and that, to question that sort of stuff, to understand that the humanities and other kinds of philosophy, history, etc., are important ways of thinking about business issues, not simply the kinds of very... High tech analytical approaches that pervade. I mean, not those don't have central value, but so yes, in that sense, I do, but I don't talk about these topics explicitly.
1: Okay, so this might not be a text in your class. Not oh. going to be. I don't know. I wrote a book on conflict of interest, so I can't assign my own text. My <laughs> I've got that one right here. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. We didn't even touch on some of the other books. I really enjoyed this one, Drawing the Line. Really cool thank you. stuff. And I think that what runs through your work is just a way of approaching problems where you attack them from multiple perspectives. And ultimately, the insight comes from the kind of synthesis of all those different perspectives. So thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you. I enjoyed it very much.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast. If you enjoyed
0: today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www dot unsiloed podcast dot com